Okay, Leafs talk. Special guest day. The boys did early vacation. They left me alone. And I'm bringing in my friend Ian Tullock, uh, at Ian Graff on socials. What's up, buddy? Thanks for doing this. Oh, thanks. You can hear my Budweiser horn going off right now to officially commemorate the win. So that's nice. Uh, that's nice that you still have that hooked up. Like I thought all of those were decommissioned. Like what yeah, year? no, I, I want to say I got it as a gift years ago and it's been hooked up to the Wi-Fi, and I just haven't unhooked <laughs> just it up to it. That. So yeah, it's just, it's still there, but, uh, yeah. yeah, thanks for having me on. I've been listening to your show all year and, uh, Happen to be a part of the, the process here. So at first, I'll tell you, at first I felt bad inviting you to do this game because the first period was about as boring as a first period we've seen all season. Like that's, I want to say that's the worst period of hockey I've seen all year. Just nothing. Completely lackluster. You could tell that it was a two o'clock game. My only thought was if this is the next gen game, if this actually matters for some kids there, we're, we're never getting new hockey fans because no one's watching this sport. Second period, Leafs pick it up. They look like the infinitely better team. They dominate basically the vast majority of the third. They come out. It's beautiful. And then they almost give one away. And uh, I, I'm going to start with this, that because you, you sent a note. That's pretty uncharacteristic for this group, right? To have to sweat out after like trying to defend the lead. That's one of the first times all year where I can really remember watching them and going, holy crap, they just looked discombobulated after protecting a big lead. Yeah, the Leafs have strangely become a defensive-oriented team, especially over the last year or two. I want to say it was, especially since they added TJ Brody, that when you look at the makeup of their team, they don't generate as much offense off the rush as they used to back in the day with Mike Babcock. They don't scare you with their speed. They're a much slower team. The way that they beat you is with slow offensive zone possession, cycling the puck in the offensive zone over and over again. I want to say last year they led the league in offensive zone possession time, which is basically their way of playing defense, making sure that they don't have to defend because they're in the offensive zone. But all season, they've been stellar defensively. When Morgan Riley went out of the lineup, I looked up the numbers. They were top three in scoring chances against at five on five. That's exactly where you want to be. That's a strong defensive team where you're in the third period. You're, you have a one or two goal lead. You expect to hold on to that lead. So you could say that maybe this is uh, the goaltending regressing to the mean a little bit because I don't think anyone expects them to go 930 save percentage the rest of the season. I think that's riding a bit hot for two guys who have been about league average throughout their careers. So I don't expect them to maintain this level of goaltending they've had. I do expect the defense to keep up, though, which is why I was a little surprised in the third period there. Things looked a, li a little leakier than usual. Yeah, the, the first goal that the Flyers score, and that by that I mean their second goal of the game, was just like a pretty nice play. Nice pass, nice rush. I think that's kind of a forgivable one. You could tell in the third one that the Leafs just fell asleep. And then there's a golden opportunity that they get. I can't remember who it was that was on the Flyers that had the empty net. But again, it, it is a play by Austin Matthews that affects it, right? And you think, okay, that's been still one of the themes of the, th the season is the forward buy-in, being able to get back in the group. But... Yeah, you mentioned the goaltending thing and how you expect it to regress at some point. This is this has been a pretty big overcorrection to the Samsonov narrative these last couple of games. All of a sudden, you're starting to see leaky goals, and he's starting to feel a little bit more like a backup. Made a big one to keep the lead, I thought, getting across his crease. But yeah, my uh, my Samsonov confidence level is is starting to diminish a little bit. I got to tell you, but here's here's the reason why you can be most confident in this team right now, and this will be, I guess, the positive of today's game. The Nylander Matthews bunting line is just completely rolling. It was it felt yeah. like it felt like a good chunk of the season that Mitch Marner's play was pretty different from everyone else's, and and I was talking about this on 
the last Leafs talk. And, and I thought I actually cursed him a bit because Nylander started this game kind of slow. It was the, his first period was as guilty as anybody. He takes the early penalty. He just didn't look like a guy moving his feet. And I went, of course, of course, I say this season is actually sneakily so much been about this guy. And then this ends up happening a two o'clock game against the Flyers where he tries to get away with it. That line was beautiful tonight. Just another the last two goals they scored were highlight reel. You can put those up with just about any of the goals that they've scored as a group this year. All of a sudden, Bunting has points in, I think, 13 or 14 of his last 15 games. Nylander's at 20 goals already, Ian. Um, I, I guess, like, Matthews is Matthews. And, and I still believe that a lot of his game has been a little bit of Tavares last season, which is more defensive buy-in. It took him a little bit more time this season to kind of click with the, the guy that he normally has been. But... Do you think that we are seeing a different Nylander? Because you are someone who's been like always a big-time proponent of his game. You've obviously been a huge fan. And, and my theory has just been this is a little bit more consistency and a little bit more strength. I'm, I'm curious what you think about it. Yeah, because you have a lot of Nylander haters in Toronto. I know that it's a... a I, I don't know anymore. Yeah, I'd like to think people are finally coming around. When you perform at a point-per-game rate two seasons in a row, I think you start to win people back. I know that everyone's been frustrated over the years with when he takes the end of a shift off or when he doesn't go hard into a puck battle or maybe he's floating at the end of a shift. He gets more flack for it than any other Leaf over the last few years. But I've always really valued his transition game. I've really valued the fact that when he picks up a puck in the defensive zone, he's going to skate it from there to the offensive zone. After he crosses the blue line, he's probably going to make a nice pass and you're going to create some type of offense off of it. But I also think off the cycle is where you're seeing him play a lot better right now. Getting to play with Austin Matthews, I think, is good for him because Matthews is obviously, like you said, one of the best players in the league. Last year, I think, probably the best player in the league. McDavid had a bit of a down year by his standards, and Matthews was stellar defensively and scored 60 goals. So I think that's the one year where Matthews is going to be able to say that he maybe had a better season than McDavid. Moving forward, yeah, probably I don't only... know if it's going to happen again. Yeah, but good for him. He got one. Not, not many people are going to be able to say that. Yeah, it's going to be tough over the next decade. I mean, especially with what McDavid's doing right now. It's just silly, some of the things he can do. But getting back to Nylander, I always valued his offensive game. But for so many years, he was topping out at 69 points, 70-ish points. He wasn't that true point-per-game player that you expected him to be. So what's happening right now? Why is he popping off all of a sudden? You could say getting to play with Austin Matthews is a factor, but I thought we saw some of it last year, even when Tavares was struggling a little bit, when he didn't look quite like himself. I thought Nylander was really the one carrying that line, and not just with his puck transporting ability, but I think he's stronger than people give him credit for the offensive zone when he's got a man on his back, when he's trying to carry the puck around the net and make a play. I think a couple of the least best goals tonight, we wanted to touch on this, was behind the net play. And that's somewhere where Nylander himself, he loves playing. I know in interviews, he's mentioned before that when the team's struggling offensively, he wants to get the puck below the goal line so that he can pull the defense there and then thread a pass out front to catch them off guard. He's really good at that. He's one of the best on the team at that. I think maybe the only player who's better at it is Mitch Marner. And that's where a lot of the smaller skilled players in the NHL, there's more space behind the net than you realize these days because not there's no more Scott Stevens in the NHL. No one's trying to murder you with a, with a hit from behind. So you have a bit more space to operate as a quick, shifty player. And I love seeing some of the plays Nylander can make from behind the goal line because it leads to really high percentage offense. And it's part of the reason he's on pace for a point per game again this season. I think those are all really good points. And yeah, like I said, I think to me, it's a, it's been a different level of buy-in from him from a consistency standpoint. Just showing up more nights than he has in the past. 
I, I don't think people really underrate his strength anymore because his lower body has always been kind of something that, that gets up, brought up pretty often by most people around the game. But to me, it just looks like he he's just he, he's more comfortable with using it more often. He just looks like he's not afraid to drive to those areas as frequently as the, he has in years past. But to me, a big part of this, too, is what you said, just the, the playing with Matthews element of it. I do think it gets probably a little overlooked just from this standpoint. His his skill set just fits better with him than it does with Tavares. Those two guys I just never thought really fully meshed, never really got the best out of one another. And that's why I kind of hope that they end up sticking with these lines because you're always going to be able to pull a lever and mix some of those dudes around. But I just think from a skill set standpoint, Nylander and Matthews fit a lot better together than Nylander did with Tavares. And it, and it goes beyond just, you know, ultimate skill as a player. Is that off the rush? Is that off the cycle? Is, is it I think it's particular? both. I think it's both. I just don't like Tavares to me as a guy who has less mobility in terms of the offensive zone, is not looking to move around the same way as Matthews is and post up in just different spots. I, I just think that it's two guys that are better complementary players as both guys who can look to shoot. It just fits. Like, it just fits my eye every time I see it. I like it. And again, like, I think you're seeing the results with Tavares and Mitch that those two guys, like... Marner can just basically fit with anybody, right? It, I don't think that there's a player in the league that you'd be able to put out there with him and you would say, oh, he's not making him better. But I think you get the full arsenal of Tavares when you put him with him. So you don't have to worry about that on the power play because they've just decided that without Rasmus Sandin that they're going with five forwards. To me tonight, the first couple actually looked, I don't know, pretty underwhelming. I couldn't really put my finger on what it was other than no goals to the first two. That was really just... Not clicking for me, but then it gets off for two of them. Again, a couple from behind the net. I don't know if we have some of the highlights that we can roll on these ones. But, yeah, what do you think about this? So, I love the idea of a five-forward power play because I want more risks in the game of hockey. I feel like there's not enough innovation. And one of the big things in the analytics movement was putting four forwards on the power play instead of just three forwards. And there's some benefits to it. There's some risks to it. Coaches argued that you couldn't go four forwards on the power play because you give up too many two-on-ones. You'd only have one defenseman out there. But over a large sample, the results showed that event you'd score more goals. You'd give up more goals. The goals against increase, but the goals for increase at such a substantial rate that it's worth the risk. I'm not sure if we'll ever get there with five forward power plays, but the one thing I really like about it is that it allows you to interchange roles. And if you can look at the, the play here, I know not everyone's going to be watching the YouTube clips. Some people are going to be listening over audio form. But I always get love the, the YouTube clips, though, and I would <laughs> implore people to watch them usually just because a lot of the times this is the uh, – like we, we'll play the entire power play here. And this is usually the only time that I actually get to have that like secondary look. You don't get to – a lot of times, I what I used to do when I watched games was rewind long segments of the game and then just catch up by fast-forwarding commercials. Don't tell uh, anybody, any of the the ad people. And now I, I don't get to do that as often because we end up finishing this game like right at the horn and we just jump right on. But I, did you hear what Elliot had to say about this too? Because he mentioned the same thing. Like, will coaches stick with it if they end up getting burned? And to me, that's actually that's the kind of thinking I usually hate in sports. Like you and I love talking about sample sizes. And I think it is the one thing that we usually agree upon, which is don't let confirmation bias just affect you off of a tiny sample. And to me, it's like, yeah, you give up a goal on an odd man rush on a power play unit. If the overall numbers that you keep coming out with are positive ones, 
that is where I just kind of find it to be a little irrefutable. Unless you start to really see you getting hammered on a power play, I just don't know why you wouldn't continue to experiment with something like this. Especially a team like the Leafs, that depending on how you feel about chasing the one spot, which seems like they're going to have a good shot at anyways, but should be using a little bit more experimentation during the regular season. Yeah, and... The thing with five forwards is that you have to have someone at the blue line who's not yep. used to being there. And that's where they put Mitch Marner, and he's definitely the most comfortable there. At five he and five, fits there. He, he looks defense. good yeah. there. He can't shoot. We all know he can't shoot. He knows he can't shoot, but he's a phenomenal passer. So put him in a spot where he can distribute. And I've always loved, even when they ran their four forward one defense power play, a lot of the times he'd rotate up high and play that spot in the middle of the ice. At five on five, we're seeing more teams do this. Nathan McKinnon's favorite spot at five on five is where Mitch Marner plays in the power play. It's at the very top at the blue line. And then it forces defenders to go, wait, am I going to chase their best player all the way out 60 feet away from their net? Or am I going to give him a, a mountain of space? And Neither decision is really the right one. You're, you're stuck. You're, you're damned if you do. You're damned if you don't because you're giving an all-world player either a bunch of room in front of him that he knows how to take advantage of yep. or you're closing in on him and he'll be able to dish it off and outnumber you down low. So that's one of the elements I like about him. I like the fact that you brought up the fact that the Leafs scored two goals with, with a five-forward power play tonight. So maybe they stick with it. But if they allowed a goal against there's no way they stick with it, right? So exactly. that's not really a fair way of doing things. That's not a fair way of evaluating the process here, which I know Dubis is a huge fan of the word process. If we look at the sample here, we go, okay, are the pros worth the cons? If you can generate more point shots from Marner that result in tips, if you can get Matthews and Nylander into different spots on the ice, because with five forwards, you're constantly interchanging roles. And if I'm a penalty killer going up against a five forward power play, I'm probably going to be confused. I'm probably not going to know exactly where everyone is at every moment. Whereas most of the times we see a lot of NHL power plays, I think get a little bit too static and put players at very specific spots that they're always standing at. I find that way easier to defend against versus guys who are constantly in motion and constantly changing. So Please. I'd like to see it for a lot longer. We'll see what happens. I can't predict the future, but the fact that they scored a couple goals tonight, I think gives them a longer leash. And whenever it comes to experimentation in the sport of hockey, I'd always love to see a longer leash because we never get to see too much innovation in the sport. Yeah, listen, there are times where you should be able to tell, I think as a coaching staff, hey, this isn't working. We need to make an adjustment in game right but that that's not a pairing that you're trying out that's not a line combination that you're trying out against a specific opponent this is a philosophical approach and so to me if you are even going to entertain the idea in the first place right like if it enters the room as something you're willing to try you shouldn't be shaken off of it based on a couple of results that don't work out this should be something that they give a test run to and th there's a couple things that you said there that i think are the main reasons why i keep running it out and i keep trying it Number one is what you mentioned about being too static. The Leafs have been better at that under Spencer Carberry. But if you recall, the times where they haven't felt right and that power play has not clicked in the past, I think one was that the players ended up having it get in their heads a little bit, which is natural when you start to slump as a really good unit. But two is it was that. It, was, it became very predictable and easy to defend. And, and that was the beauty of tonight was, like you said, they're all moving around. They all end up in different places. And I think that all of those guys have incredible amount of a combination of hockey smarts and skill, which is going to allow them to be dangerous from a bunch of different areas. But the second part is the, okay, Marner doesn't have a heavy shot. That's pretty clear. But the way that the Flyers and this, the Flyers are not really a good team to judge much of this against. That team is 
boy, had you blown a lead against that team, that would have been one hell of an embarrassment. But they clearly were just, you know, collapsing on the power play. They just were giving everything up top and saying, go ahead, Mitch Marner, shoot. But what did that equate to? Two goals. You said it. That guy gets time and space. Get what, guess what he's going to be able to do? Filter the puck towards the net into areas where guys who are very, very good at tipping pucks like Austin Matthews and John Tavares reside. So I, I don't know. I just think that there's a re- lot of reason to be optimistic about it. I'll admit it that my old brain, when I see this, when I like hear that they're doing it, I, I think to myself, I'm like, this is too far. I love the traditional bomb from the point. I grew up idolizing the idea of like having an Al McInnes back there, right? Just the weapon, the threat. I liked what I saw tonight after the first couple. And I just, I really hope that we do end up seeing it a lot more. Yeah. And the shift away from point shots is something that's, I think, very analytics driven. I know. It's already happening. At the Athletic, yeah, you guys, article you guys about killed it point longer. shots. You guys killed point shots. You, you, the nerds. They said that every once in a while they get blocked and lead to odd man rushes, and then everybody just dusted them off, and now nobody has to shoot from the point anymore. Well, we can also look at every point shot that's ever been taken over the last 10 or 15 years. We can see God. that they go in about 2% of the time. The other yeah. 98% of the time, they don't go in, and that's a bad shot. So yeah. if, you're, if you're shooting for a deflection, I think that's a very different thing, mm-hmm. and I think that's what Mitch Marner was very consciously trying to do. It's funny. He accidentally scored. He was looking for the, the, yeah, of course. the, the, the tip the in tip. the slot there. But it, the goalie was prepared for the tip. The tip didn't happen. And then it squeaked by him. So I think there's an extra th- threat there. When you look at Mitch Marner on the power play when he was at his most successful, it was the Kadri JVR unit. This is going back a few years. But he yeah. looked for that high tip in the slot. He loves shooting from far away, getting a deflection, and then all the forwards converge for the rebound. It creates chaos. And I think I saw a stat somewhere. It was either a coach or a front office uh, NHL staffer mentioned it that – 25% of quote-unquote broken plays result in goals. And Marner's really good at creating broken plays with that deflection, with that high shot t- uh, tip pass, whatever you want to call it. He's excellent at creating that. So the more opportunities you can give him to create that type of look, I think you're increasing your chances of scoring. Does that mean you need to play him at defense and you have to have a five-forward power play? No, I think it would work with Riley too at the top and Marner somewhere on the half wall making a good pass to someone. But I do like the idea of trying something new and getting creative with it because so, you have the opportunity to do it. You, you just said something there that that was going to be my last question about the power play before we can move on. It's Morgan Riley is getting close. What happens if this actually does look good, like he doesn't come back for a game and it starts to hum? Do you do it automatically? Do you just immediately give the guy his spot back on power play one and say, hey, he's part of your leadership group. He has... Because there were conversations about Morgan Riley being on power play one before he got hurt. This is one of those tough organizational decisions where because he has a no move clause, because he has an eight year contract, he's probably going to get the spot. I'd imagine he would. I'd imagine that's how professional sports work. But if you're just objectively looking at the evidence and you want to try to make the best decision for the team, is that the decision you'd end up making? I'm not sure. And with Morgan Riley, I've been highly critical of his overall value relative to his perception throughout most of his career. And I think I've been a bit unfair to him at five on five. I always mention how much he gives up defensively and how many rush chances he gives up, but I probably don't give him enough credit for the offense that he generates with his puck moving ability and with his ability do you think that to translates join the, rush. To the power play. Well, do you think that translates to the power play? Because yeah, that's unquestionable when he's off the rush, but the, the critique that we've had for him essentially all year when we've done this, like Bourne McKee and I has been, it, it usually feels as though he he dusts the puck off 
on the power play a lot. That it's a, it's a split second too long when it comes to the decision making. And that, you know, you want to talk about being hypercritical, right? I'm not a former quarterback defenseman, but yeah, you just look at all of professional sports. It does come down to these small little increments of time. And there are moments where just it does feel like, yeah, he is the odd man out on that power play in terms of the quickness in which that team makes decisions. So for power play performance, I know the best predictor of future success is how often you can gain the zone and set up in formation or Good generate rush shits. And I think Riley's excellent at that. I think Riley, yeah. even though he doesn't always carry it every time right away, your goal is to drop it to either Marner or Matthews. I think Riley presents you with a little bit of a threat of doing that more so than a Michael Bunting would. So there would be an argument in Riley's favor where my speed and my ability to get north and scare an opposing forechecker into backing off and giving Mitch Marner a bit more room, that's going to help our power play gain the zone, which is going to make us more efficient, which is going to help us score more goals. But when you're in zone and you're setting up, is your argument, you're saying he doesn't have a heavy shot, so teams are going to back off of him on the point. I mean, frankly, I'm not sure if I even want a heavy point shot in today's modern NHL because it might encourage you to use it more often, and then you're just taking bad shots from distance. I like having it as an option, but I also like the responsibility being there. The The issue I have is Riley's shot is not all that effective, but you just saw what Marner does back there kind of in that quarterback power play role from that position. And all I could think of is I prefer – I think – I'm not going to say I prefer Marner because I, I haven't seen enough of it. But I'd like to see Marner run that role. I'd like to see him in kind of that Morgan Riley spot of being at the top and running the power play. And then if you're going to sag off, it's his decision making over Morgan Riley's. I, I guess my only question to you about the, the zone entry thing, because, yeah, clearly that's extremely valuable. And it's something like, listen, you're always going on gushing about it, right? Like you'll put up yeah. with all of the awfulness of Pierre Engvall to me. This is what I love about you and I. We see the game very differently. It's enjoyable doing Kevin something. Fiala, William Nylander. I just yeah. I love guys who can gain the zone. If you can of gain course. the zone, you're golden to me. Of course, right. It's it's a it's the number one skill set that you covet. This is even this is just a question. It's not something I've even thought of before. But when you're on a power play and you already have possession of it, like how many guys do you need that are excellent at zone entries? Like is it is it literally the more you can have the better? Because I would wonder on a power play one that already has Austin Matthews, William Nylander, Mitch Marner, do you really need to have? I, I, do you need to have a Morgan Riley or does his skill set sort of get diminished a little bit because you already have other guys that have the exact same stuff? Yeah, and I guess this is where an argument for do you really need a William Nylander on PP1? Shouldn't you have someone who can win battles after a first shot? Shouldn't you have someone who's more of a net front presence? I mean, we saw Joe Thornton and Wayne Simmons on PP1 above William Nylander at some yep. points in the past. And I think just getting more skill out there gives you more options. And that's not to say get a bunch of speedy zone entry specialists who can't do anything once they get it, because I don't want Pierre Engvall on PP1. I just don't. I wouldn't have wanted Ilya Mikheyev on PP1 back when he was a leaf. So they are separate skills in that if you can just gain the zone and then you can't make a skilled play after gaining the zone, uh, that that's a problem. And there are guys like Michael Grabner, Casperi uh, Kapanen, a lot of guys you can think of who are burners, speedsters, but not the smartest players. And I think on the power play, you want more smart players. You want guys who can make a pass that can beat a defense because you're going to be facing a set defense for the most part. It's really hard to break structure. So you want to get your most talented guys out there who are good at breaking structure for the Leafs, Matthews, Marner, Nylander come to mind immediately. But now after that, okay, Tavares, another one who's going to be either net front or in the little bumper role there, you get one more player to add to that. Do you want it to be a Morgan Riley who can man the blue line, who can gain the zone, who can use his speed? 
who's uh, very comfortable activating down the wall when he jumps up into the zone like he does at five on five? Or do you want a Michael Bunting type? Do you want a Kelly Youngcroft who can give you an additional shot presence? Do you want whatever forward it is that you trade for at the trade deadline who presumably has top six offense? I think that's what the Leafs desperately need in their bottom six is more scoring. So maybe that player is an option on, on a five forward power play unit. I think eventually they're going to revert back to Morgan Riley, which is why I yeah. hate analyzing this because I think it's, it's, it's almost no, all but that's why not. it's fun doing this. <laughs> that's why it's fun doing this exercise is because it, it is something that I do wonder if they'll ever go back to it. And especially just even having a sample like this, if it does work out, if you do have success and Morgan Riley in the unit starts to stagnate, I, I think Sheldon Keefe is the kind of coach that would go back to it and, and would at least give it a shot and give it a try. And I guess my argument against the whole, hey, Morgan Riley's here on the eight-year deal and he's got the no-move clause and he's part of your leadership core. Well, I think, A, part of being a good leader is always knowing when you need to take a step back for something or being able to handle a diminished role with grace. Um, I also think that you having an eight-year deal and a no-move clause means you want to be here, and you're also on a year deal to be here. So maybe you just buy into it a little bit more. Again, this this does sound, I think, a little bit extreme. Obviously, they're using this measure given where they're at with the composition of their roster. So yeah, you're right. Morgan Riley probably slides back in. But yeah, if they ever do stagnate as a group, I, I again, I, I believe that their coach is the kind of guy that would take a risk and trot it out there again and, and give it a different shot, give it a different look. Um, How much of their play without Morgan Riley do you think is an indictment on Morgan Riley in terms of his overall value? Because I know it's not the hugest sample. You know me, I love the, the bigger the sample, the better. We're north of 10 games at this point. We're not at 15 no, no, no. yet. It matters. It matters. But, it, and it's not just shooting percentage driven because that was something that I've argued in the past is that their save percentage is so high right now that it's kind of skewing your perception of what they are as a team. But they're actually first in scoring chance differential at 5-5 five and five with Morgan Riley out of the lineup. That wouldn't be the case for a lot of teams if they were missing their number one defenseman. So does that speak to how well the other guys are playing? Is that Lilligren stepping up? When Sandin was healthy, he was stepping up in a second pair role. Mark Giordano at 5-on-5 five five has been driving play really well his entire career, but in his late 30s, he's still doing it. And then you have TJ Brody, who I think is the glue on this team defensively. But the fact that they can play this well without their $8 million, eight-year defenseman, I think to me, this proves the point I've been trying to make over the past few years, which is that he's maybe not as valuable as you think at 5-on-5, five five, because even though he's elite offensively, I'd argue he's the opposite of that defensively. Okay, so I started saying this by, you and I disagree on a lot. And it's very respectful, and it's why uh, I think that, you know, you and I have always had really good conversations about the game, is that... Yeah, it, it doesn't end up being like the social. You and I have disagreed about players. You and I have, like, yeah, at odds about a bunch of different stuff. Morgan Riley's never really been that guy for us. Um, I, I, I don't know what the case is that it isn't an indictment of his importance to this team or his value to this team. I, I still think that he, this is a very much a two things can be true thing. Is he worth that contract? Yep. Could he have gotten that on the open market? Absolutely. Is he a good is he a good player on the power play? Not a great player on the power play. Yes. Is he a great rush defenseman? Absolutely. Is he uh, a physical freak? Is he a good guy in the room? A great culture setter? Someone who is, you know, one of their leaders off the ice as well. And I don't just mean that in terms of like his, his the, the vocal stuff. I mean that in terms of he is just a, he's a gym freak. Um, he is a conditioning freak. And that's something that this team covets a lot. Um, 
I can't remember a single time over the stretch he's missed that I've gone, boy, they really miss Morgan Riley tonight. Not a game, not a moment, not a shift. It just it just hasn't been there for me. And if I guess the case for me would be pretty simply this. One is I think that TJ Brody is so good that you can put him with anyone and yep. just immediately elevate the pairing. Look at Justin Hall. Remember who he used to be in terms of the way he was critiqued by Leaf fans and Leaf commentators? What what where has that gone? Uh, that's gone to him playing with TJ Brody and him being fine. Also, I should say I have in my quick notes just because I mentioned him. I thought a couple of good stick plays by Justin Hall tonight. Broke up a couple hey, of big plays. Hey, did well. I, I like Hall. I like uh, I like giving Justin Hall his flowers when I think he plays well, and I thought he did some. He made some good plays tonight. Um, to me, this is this is where you get into being in a salary cap world, and you get into salary cap thinking. The gap between what you can get from Rasmus Sandin is not, and and Morgan Riley is not $6 million. Like, it's just not. And I don't think it's... power play at five on five. Anywhere you want to put it. I would say that the the one thing about Morgan Riley and to his defense right now, and this has been brought up, and I think it's a fair point. He's been good for them in the postseason. And if you were telling me, like, tomorrow is your team better with Morgan Riley heading into a playoff series versus some of the other guys that have stepped up in his absence, I would say absolutely. The issue is, is like, again, in a, in a capped league, it, it's really hard for me to say that you can justify a salary like that when you're talking about stats that are as extremes as the ones that you're presenting and also matching it with eye test of never really missing the guy. I just... I don't know if he fits as well with the direction that this team has now gone with. It was one thing when they were more of a, hey, we're trying to be a little bit more run and gun and run up the score on you. Having a guy like Morgan Riley made sense. When you're trying to win your games 3-1 every single night, I'm not, I'm not quite sure it is. I feel like I need to throw him a bone here. And when you're down by a goal, I think Morgan sure. Riley has immense value in the NHL. When has that happened it, for them this year? <laughs> like when, hey, I mean, the last couple of weeks, it hasn't happened very much. I mean, they're winning right. a lot. But, uh, yeah, I guess one thing I want to bring up with Morgan Riley is that I know that defensively there are concerns. And I'm I'm trying to play the other side of the coin here because I know some very smart people who have constantly been in my texts, in my DMs, in my life, just telling me that I'm on the wrong side of history on this. And I I always like trying to listen to to say that because we're living in the right side of presence. The the, the present (laughs) is is doing fine, just fine for you. Anyway, sorry to cut you off. No, it's all good because, uh, you know me, I love looking at my stats. I love looking at my numbers. And even though he's among the worst when it comes to giving up shots against, scoring chances against, rush chances against, he's among the very, very best. And we're talking Norris level when it comes to uh, generating chances off the rush, generating passes through the slot. And that's another thing that I really value because there aren't too many NHL players who can consistently get the puck through the slot. Every coach, every defenseman is trying to take that away. And that's why a guy like Mitch Marner, who can constantly thread those passes, has a bunch of value. Morgan Riley might not be the defensive equivalent of Mitch Marner. I don't think he's quite as good offensively. But the amount of assists he's able to put up year over year, it's not an accident. It's because he's able to make those plays consistently. Uh, You brought up his playoff performance. That's something I wanted to touch on. Because in the sport of hockey, you know me, I'm a numbers guy. I love my sample sizes. You get a seven-game sample in a one-round series. Yeah, but, uh, that's what I mean. You can never you get. get it. You'll never be happy with that because that's just the way it is. So that is where sort of you do have to add a little bit more value to what ends up happening there. Like 
That, yeah. That's where you and I will always be at odds. That's just the, the nature of the beast. You're never going to be able to get your sample sizes. But guess what? It's like playoffs are never going to evolve into something where all of a sudden you're playing a second schedule. You know, like it's not going to be like 82 goaltending. Games. I'll ask for 200 games of a goalie. No, Ian, we need a decision before that. We need to yeah. know what he is. So yeah. uh, yeah. we, here's here's the thing with analytics. Uh, we know that you can get closer to the truth with more data that you have. That's just unfortunately not the reality of the business all the time. Yeah, so make a decision based on a smaller sample. What can you look at that you can kind of make some kind of statement out of? Uh, If I'm the Leafs and I'm looking at, quote unquote, big playoff games, anytime it's either a series deciding game or let's say you're one game away from elimination or from eliminating an opponent. Morgan Riley, I think, has consistently been among their best players in those games. I'm thinking back to the report cards I do, and he's always at four or five stars in those big games. And I'm I'm going, wow, he's moving the puck incredibly well. He's playing tighter defensively in those games than I've ever seen him play because my biggest criticism is, man, you're giving them way too much space off the rush. And on a Tuesday night in January, who cares? But in April, in May, when it's game six, he's actually looked pretty good defensively. So is that something I can count on in the future? That's where I'm not sure. I'd love to say, yes, I can count on Morgan Riley being a strong defensive player in a winner-go-home kind of game. But based on his play over the last four or five regular seasons that's where my brain has trouble kind of compartmentalizing the real Morgan Riley versus See, that's, playoff Riley. That's where you and I, it's just, it's very easy for me is I, I just think there are guys in those moments who are not afraid of them and who do bear down and who do tighten up their decision-making and who are not as loose with it. Like, man, the, this is just the most extreme example of this, but I think of a guy like Kucherov and he was actually last year in the postseason. He, I would argue that he wasn't locked in for a lot of it and was making a lot of just poor decisions. But when you've seen Kucherov at his best, what is it? It's the decision making that just completely tightens up, and he starts to make much better plays. You watch Kucherov in a regular season game, you go, that that guy, that guy was the you know story of an entire postseason run where he looked like one of the greatest players of all time. To me, it is. It's it's like your commitment to the task that you're doing at hand without overthinking it, which is when you start to kind of choke, right? That's always the belief is that you start to overthink all of the things that you're doing all at one time. But if you can just tighten up a few of those different processes, I think that is something that some athletes do very well. And and that is something to me that Morgan Riley provides you is a guy who brings attention to detail and has been through enough of those bigger game experiences now that he, he's just, he's able to navigate them with, yeah, He's able to navigate them better than some of his other peers, I would argue. Anyway, um, okay. I, I don't know what the future is for him other than he's going to continue to be on this team because what other choice do you have? And in a season where they have all this cap space that they can utilize because of the Muzzin injury, it's going to be kind of a moot point anyway. But I will say that there probably is going to be some interesting conversations for them coming this offseason. If it trends this way, he doesn't have an, an obvious and massive impact. And they do have to think a couple of years down the line about making decisions on guys like Sandine and Lilligren in terms of what kind of contracts they're going to get and maybe some other guys that fit the team better. So, uh, yeah, I think that's kind of a TBD. All right, let's rapid fire this one before we get going. Is there anything from this game that we missed that you'd like to touch on? Uh, yeah, I talked about behind the net a little bit, and I noticed them going for it a lot on the power play. They did it a few yep. times at 5-on-5 five five as well, but... Uh, statistically, it's one of the best chances you can create a pass from behind the net that leads to a shot. And the Leafs are really unique in that the last few years, if you look at their shots for or the, just the actual total number of shots, they're coursey if you're a nerd. It's not the greatest in the league, but their quality chances, their, their 
scoring chances either from the slot or yep. shots that originate off of a pass through the slot or from behind the net. They're getting really high-quality shots. They're among the league leaders in quality chances year after year. Yep. And I think that they're well aware of the fact that any shot that originates from a pass behind the net is a quality chance, and they're trying to get their forwards to buy into that a little bit more. That's where Marner scored his goal on the power play from the point. That's how the Michael Bunting goal start started. It was William Nylander making a pass from behind the net out to Austin Matthews. I love the way that the Leafs do that. I think they need to continue doing that to be at the level of offense that they need to get to because defensively, they've been outstanding this year. But offensively, I think there's another gear that they can get to. And behind the net passes from what we saw today, more of that will lead to more goals. And I loved watching. Yeah, it's nice. It's an astute observation. I would say that I'd rather have it be this way than the other way around, which is getting the defensive buy-in and then worrying about the rest later. But to me, this this is the formula that's going to work for them and I, what I think that they have unlocked. You're right, there's probably another gear to it. But yeah, if you can play really responsible defensive hockey and you can get buy-in from your forwards the way that we saw it for, again, most of tonight, right? Like, when did it? When did the Flyers tick over the, the double-digit mark for shots? And part of that yeah, is, again... Third period at some point? Yeah, it, part of that is the Flyers. Part of that is just the Leafs, the spaces that they take away and the, the guys, the way that they do it. But... It's very clear that they are prioritizing, yes, those quality shots over just peppering a team. And it is that offensive zone possession time when allowing them. Do you get two cute moments? Yep. Uh, are there places where they can improve, like you just said? Yep. Um, but I, I think that they know that if they can get a few good quality chances every single game and they can play the way that they're playing right now defensively and getting goaltending that is just, you know, above average, guys who can make, as Kevin Woodley says, like the non, like the, the, just don't give up bad goals, you know, yeah. just don't give up the bad goals, make the high percentage saves, then they have a, a bit of a winning formula. Um, quick note for me, uh, speaking of the Flyers thing, the shots not going over 10, I was having a blast watching how long it was going to be uh, the Flyers having one goal on one shot. I, I, was, I was very locked into that. I cared so deeply about it. And of course, the second that I mentioned it, it ended up going away. Um, yeah, you were texting me jokes during the game. And I'm like, the shots are 21 to 9. This shouldn't be one nothing Flyers. I don't know what's happening. I know. Uh, I really liked that. You know me. I liked the scrum. I liked the way that all the Leafs got involved in it. I love that Jordy Ben just immediately flew in. He ends up taking a penalty. But great, that's what he does. But... Um, I got a bit of a I got a bit of a crush on Holmberg. I've been bringing it up show after show. I just think that he is just a quality player who uh, I have time for, and I love that he was in the middle of it too. Uh, and then I've been last... very pleasantly surprised by him. I did not think he'd be this good at the NHL level, and he's looked good this year. I thought he was just a, like a preseason wonder kind of guy, and not like he was just tearing up the preseason, but he looked good in it, and people took note of him, and he stood out. And I thought, hey, this guy actually stands out. But then you remember. Yeah, and these split squad games where guys are just mostly trying to get through them healthy and then the younger guys like the Holmbergs who are trying to stand out in those moments, that that's usually why you look at them and think that they're better than they are. And yeah, just sort of game after game, he just ends up being, to me anyway, like a, a positive player. Yeah, he's not dynamic or anything, but he's an NHL center. And I know Keith yep. said it's nice to have a center in the lineup and I, I can understand why as a coach you like that. Yep. Uh, and then, yeah, nothing... Nothing else really for me other than, yeah, just, again, they're just, there really does seem to be just incredible chemistry with the with the top line right now, I guess, depending on who you call the top line. Oh, yeah, and I also just have, uh, once again, it's just, it's impossible for Kerfoot to convert. It's just, I don't know what he's got to do. 
But there's just no there's no funnier thing right now for the Leafs than watching Alex Kerfoot break in on the net alone and have golden opportunities and just not be able to finish them. You know, there were some nerds out there who were saying that his scoring pace in that one playoff run and the season afterwards were completely unsustainable. I'm not sure who those nerds are, but I know that they would have liked to have seen Kerfoot been traded for you know, surplus value. But yeah. it is what it is at this point. What can you do? He's, and listen, and guess what? He's fine in the role that he's in. It's just, uh, would you like to upgrade that role at some time to a guy who can maybe finish a goal? Uh, Ian Tullock. Again, you can follow him at Ian Graff. Love hearing your perspective, man. I appreciate you coming on today. And uh, yeah, I think that the audience does it too. And again, like Bourne, McKee, a little bit of hot seat. Like they're both in vacation. You're coming here, bringing some A-plus analysis. Just saying, might not be jobs for the fellas when they come back. Uh, we are going uh, into our holiday schedule. Um, so I'm going to be gone. Uh, Sis going on. David Sis, our producer, informs me he's going on a cruise with his family, which, listen, I love my family. I can't think of anything worse than being trapped on a boat with my family for an extended amount of days. Like, there's nowhere to run. There's nowhere to hide. You're just. You can go to the bar. You can go to the pool. There's got to be different Yeah, guess, guess where my family would all be? The bar. <laughs> like, I. <laughs> I wouldn't be the only family member that'd be hanging out in that area. No, I'd have to be getting, you know, bottles to go, please, to go hide out in some other part of the, uh, some other part. So sis is gone. Our whole team, uh, we were going to try to do some over the holiday break, but again, Sam is in Mexico. Born is in the States. I'm kind of all over the place with family. Um, if you are in Ontario, uh, you're in the GTA, you're probably watching this. Hey, be safe over the next couple of days with the storm, hunker down, make sure that, uh, you drive safe. You let, you don't have to be anywhere. Uh, it's not that important. Um, hopefully you end up getting to see loved ones and yeah, thanks for uh, a great year because that's when we're going to be back is, uh, yeah, we'll be back. I think for it's January 2nd or the third, there's a game. I think it's against the blues. I should do a better job of looking at schedule, but subscribe, review, follow, do all those different things. And then you'll see us when we're back. And again, go follow Ian Tullock at Ian Graff. I promise you won't forget it. Uh, thanks for making time and we will catch you in the new year. See ya. Happy holidays guys.